Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. I read a story a number of months ago from Hannah Anderson, and she tells of this story that uh, her father was a painter. And so uh, one particular week or month, he was asked to come in and help paint or, or uh, kind of uh, redo this apartment building or, or whatever else. And so he, he comes in and he paints, and as he's walking by this dumpster, he sees this beautiful painting. And sure enough, he's just kind of drawn to the painting. He takes the painting out of the dumpster and takes it home. Through following years and months, he finds out that this was a painting that had formerly been shown in the National Endowment. It was a famous painting by Carl Blair. It was entitled Red Bank. And, and she tells of this story about how this painting had been handed down from her grandfather to her father and then to her. Here is this painting that has renown. It's famous. It's valuable. And it's cast into a dumpster because someone unknowingly unwittingly didn't know what it was she writes about this in her book all that's good and and the story reminds us of some things that that hold value but they hold value to specific people there are those that would redo an apartment and throw out something that that is absolutely valuable and treasured amongst others see even now anderson says that she wouldn't sell that painting, Red Bank, it holds another kind of value to her. It's, it's, it's a valuable uh, monetary asset, but to her, it's a family heirloom. It holds a different kind of value even. See, we live in an era where, where Jesus holds value for various types of people. He holds value. Some view him as, as a wise sage, that is, he's dispensing these wise words to live by. Others view Jesus as this, this uh, political dissident, and he holds value as an example of someone who stood up to the powers that be and challenged the authorities of his day. Still others see him as Savior, one who saved people from their sins. But the, the fundamental narrative about Jesus in the gospel was one of rejection, not of acceptance. We're reminded that there wasn't wide-scale acceptance of Jesus. And just as this famous painting, Redbeck's, had been cast aside, thrown into a dumpster, Jesus Christ himself was put on a cross, placed to die. He was antiquated, useless. Brings a question to us this morning. How has mankind passed over something so valuable in Christ? And not just in the first century, not just in the second century or the 15th century. How how in the 21st century are we still passing by the value of Jesus Christ? As we look at our passage this morning in Matthew chapter 2, we see countless examples of, of people in the city of Jerusalem who are presented with the prospect of seeing the Christ, the promised one, and they don't take the opportunity. Some are actually obstinate to the purpose of this promised one, and, and they seek to undermine his coming. While still others, the unexpected ones of the story, are those who bow and worship before this king. See, here's our big idea. Only the eyes of faith can see Jesus as the rightful king. 
only our eyes, as, as we have them uh, opened in faith, can see Jesus as the rightful king that he is. And we're going to see this kind of in two phases. In Matthew 2, verses 1 through 8, there's wise men that come to Jerusalem and they inquire about the king of the Jews. And we're going to kind of unpack what exactly that means and why that was a threat to King Herod. And then finally in verses 9 through 12, the, the portion that Jody read for us this morning, the wise men find Jesus and worship him. So let's dive in in verses 1 through 8 this morning of Matthew chapter 2, where we see that wise men come to Jerusalem and inquire about the king. Let's read verses 1 and 2. After, now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. See, these wise men, they come from the east. And some scholars kind of differentiate or they disagree about what exactly that means. But tradition holds uh, some specific truths about these wise men. First, they, they have names. Some traditions hold that their names were Melchon, Belteshazzar, and Gaspar. And that they were later baptized by the apostle Thomas. And in the 12th century, a, a bishop uh, locally kind of claimed to have found their skulls and, and offered them as objects um, for viewing, whatever, for worship. But the Bible tells us what we need to know, right? They were from the east. They probably came from Babylon or Persia or Egypt. And, and whatever the specific geography, they are foreign to Israel. And this is kind of played out throughout this passage. See, Matthew is building this case uh, in the book of Matthew to show how the Jews have rejected Jesus Christ as Messiah. And so it starts here in Matthew chapter 2 where three men from foreign countries come and worship Jesus while the others who are presented with the Christ are, are largely in, uninterested. It, it compares the sacrificial worship of these wise men with the hatred and disinterest of Herod and Jerusalem. So they come from the east, and they came following a star. It was common kind of in the, the first century and, and the ancients for them to see uh, the birth of someone notable uh, to be noted by signs in the heavens. In fact, there's stories of, of Nero and other emperors. They have signs in the heavens that would tell of their birth. And so um, really, Jesus being accompanied by a star wouldn't have been anything particular. But this story is unique as this star is unique, and we'll dig into to that in, in later as we get into the passage. Specifically, though, Matthew's kind of hearkening our eyes and our ears back to a story from the book of Numbers. See, the book of Numbers tells of the story, Balak, the king of Moab, uh, Moab, that wanted to call down curses upon the nation of Israel. If you remember in the book of Numbers, Israel's traveling from Mount Sinai to the promised land, and as they're doing so, uh, Balak is afraid of the Israelites. And so he calls upon this kind of magician, this prophet guy, Balaam, to come and call down curses upon the nation of Israel. And the story goes that Balaam goes with Balak on this journey. They take a road trip, as it were, and bring Balaam to see Israel, but Balaam cannot produce a curse. And every time he opens his mouth, he actually brings blessing. Now, one of these blessings is recorded for us in Numbers 24, and it's going to be on the screen behind me in Numbers 24, 17. Listen to what he says. He says, I see him but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. 
So if we go back to Numbers 24, we see that Balaam is a man from the east prophesying a star, a king of the Jews. And here in Matthew chapter 2, men from the east follow a star uh, to the true king of the Jews. And that's exactly what these men are looking for. Look at verse 2. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now, Herod would have thought of himself as the king of the Jews. So if someone were to show up on Herod's doorstep and say, where is the one who is the king of the Jews? Herod would say on him, I'm that guy. Because his history was one where he had been kind of um, tapped by the Roman government to oversee this area of Judea. And so... uh, France tells the history, R.T. France tells the history of Herod. Herod was the son of a man named Antipater. He was an Edomite, uh, and he was also the son of a woman from Arabia. So he had no Jewish roots whatsoever. And yet his father had converted to Judaism, uh, you know, the generation before him. And so what happened with Herod was the Jews in the area kind of just didn't accept him. In fact, they referred to him, as as Josephus tells us, they referred to him as a half-Jew, that he wasn't really Jewish enough for them because he hadn't been uh, physically a descendant of Abraham. So he was just this harsh dictator of a leader. He was known for kind of killing even members of his own family. He would put his own sons to death out of just this kind of conspiratorial fear that they would rise up against him and take away his throne. In fact, it was said of him later on that um, he would, I would rather be his pig than his son. In fact, it's a play on words in the Greek. The word for pig is hus. The word for son is huios. So I'd rather be his hus than his huios. I'd rather be his pig because he's a good law-abiding Jew that would never kill an unclean animal rather than his son, right? Herod's just not a good guy. And so when these men show up on the doorstep of Jerusalem, they see uh, others around, they're saying, where is the one who is born the king of the Jews? Now, think about that. Herod was not born a king of the Jews. And so immediately it threatens him. You see, the wise men introduce a discussion about the true king. In fact, when we look at these verses in verses 1, 2, and 3, we see the word king used three different times in three different verses, right? Herod the king in verse 1, the one who was born king in verse 2, and then Herod the king again in verse 3. See, Matthew is bringing this issue to the forefront for us to kind of deal with it. And if we kind of go back into the history of where we've been in Matthew, we saw in Matthew chapter 1 the lineage from, from King David all the way down to Joseph, and then Jesus, the one who's adopted into the family of Joseph that bears all the rights of, of the inheritance, that is the true uh, king in succession uh, of the nation of Israel through his tie to Joseph. And so now Matthew again invites us into the, to this discussion. Well, what happens in verse 3 through 6 is Herod starts a discussion with the, the scribes and the high priests. So look at verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the the rulers of Judah. 
For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. See, what happens is as these wise men show up, Herod and Jerusalem are troubled in verse 3. That could mean that they're stirred up or agitated. And so what's happening is Herod is nervous. And we have to ask, why is all Jerusalem nervous with Herod? Why are they also stirred up? Well, you have a man who's kind of just not right in the head. And when he is agitated and he is more than, uh, has more than enough history of killing other individuals, the whole city is kind of on, on pins and needles, And so Herod, in verses 4 through 6, he gathers these uh, priests and scribes. He gathers kind of the politically-minded religious leaders and the lawyers, and they start to discuss where exactly the Christ is to be born. And what happens is they give him a pretty direct answer from Micah chapter 5. See, the Christ was to be born in Bethlehem. Now, I've had taken the privilege of taking uh, Micah 5, verse 2, where that prophecy comes from, and we put it on the screen behind us. He says this, excuse me, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for, for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Now, let's just kind of put that passage from Micah 5, verse 2, up against Matthew chapter 2. So there's another slide here. Uh, Next slide there, Owen. There we go. And so Matthew, in quoting this passage, makes some specific changes, right? So in the first, he says, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephathra. And Matthew changes it to say, you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah. They mean essentially the same thing, but what they're really highlighting is, is that Jesus is uh, from the land of Judah. And, and Matthew's really kind of highlighting that. Well, the second section, there's not really too much that's changed. Who are too little to be among the clans of Judah? From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel. And Matthew interprets it this way, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler. Kind of the same thought for thought translation. But what happens at the end is, is something different. Who's coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. But Matthew changes it to this, who will shepherd my people Israel. Why did he change that, that last section? Why did Matthew kind of insert himself into this process and actually change the, the prophecy? Well, actually what he's doing is he's grabbing another prophecy from Second Samuel chapter 5 where, where David would shepherd the house of Israel. And he's kind of borrowing from this language, saying he's one who's descended from David. He's one who will rule over his people, but he will rule over them like a shepherd, contrary to the life of Herod, who kills his people, who puts them on pins and needles in fear. There's one coming from Joseph of Arimathea. There's one coming from the line of David who would rule over his people, who would shepherd them. So Herod in all of his fear, kind of tries to trick these wise men in verse 7. When Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what, the time, or what time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, uh, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Herod says he wants to come and worship the child too. But later on, we find out that this is a massive lie. 
If you go ahead and scan your eyes down to verse 16, which we'll get to in our, our next chapter. Verse 16 says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years or older under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. See, he's not telling us his true motive, right? His true motive is nothing short of infanticide, that he wants to eliminate any threat to his throne. He wants to kill any child under this specific age so that he can eliminate any threat to him as a person. It would seem, even in the first century, politicians were willing to manipulate Jesus in order to get what they wanted. We recognize this morning that Herod's intentions are not on the level, that he's kind of underhanded and, and, and conniving and outright immoral. See, as we look at this, as we look at this passage, we see that some don't see Jesus as the true king. There's an old commentator by the name of J.C. Ryle, and he, he describes it this way. It is not always those who have the most religious privileges who give Christ most honor. It's not those who have the most religious privilege who give Christ the most honor. And so when we look at this passage in, in verses 1 through 8, we see three different groups of people and their response to this word of Christ being born in their midst. There's Herod, who just has outright hostility and rejection of the Christ. Herod views the Christ as a rival to his position, as a threat to be eliminated. We scan and we see the priests and the scribes, those who know the Word of God in the Old Testament, and they've soaked it in, but it's seemingly trapped inside their brain cells as they don't even lift a finger to go and find out if this claim of the birth of Christ is real. There's the city of Jerusalem that, that sees Jesus' presence as a threat, as something to be feared because of the ruler that uh, rules over them. And before we kind of give them a pass, we recognize that in the same book of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 27, it's these same crowds in Jerusalem that will call out to free Barabbas and to crucify Jesus. See, none of these people are just kind of innocent in this regard of, of these claims of Christ. All of them have shown kind of a either hatred, outright hatred of the Messiah or rejection of the Messiah or just a disinterest in him. Paul says it with, with such clarity in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In, in verse 18, he says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. The message of the cross is actually foolishness to those who, who don't have eyes of faith. And he goes on in, in verse 22, and he says, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. See, they reject the person of Christ because they don't see him as powerful or wise. Because Jesus didn't look powerful or wise to those who had rejected him. It shows us that there really isn't indifference to Jesus. Jesus is either foolish and weak or wise and powerful depending on the faith that God puts in your heart. See, I sense that modern people want Jesus to be like grandma. And I know this season we think grandma got run over by a reindeer. That's not where I'm going. We want Jesus to be like grandma. We want him to be soft-spoken, sweet, 
and kind. And some of you are saying, that's not my grandma. <laughs> Just borrow someone else's grandma for a second, right? He's soft-spoken. He's sweet. He's kind. She, she would stand behind any endeavor that we set ourselves to, and she would turn a blind eye to any wrong that we had performed. Really, though, Jesus isn't like grandma at all. Unless your grandma is the sovereign king of the world, which I sincerely doubt. See, like Herod, our private aspirations are a rival kingdom to the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. They are to be laid down in honor and worship to the king. We, we may not realize it, but our indifference to Jesus is, is really spiritual mutiny in which we reject the rightful king of the world. And we don't bow our knee before his throne. But this passage, thank God, it gives us another example of those who do bow the knee, who do come to Christ and worship. And these are the verses that that Jody had read for us in verses 9 through 12. Now we want to highlight this morning that these people are from outside of the nation of Israel. These people are foreigners. They, they have no claim to the, the rights and the histories of the Jewish people. They have no claim to the scriptures or anything. We get no sense of that. They are just led here by divine circumstances to come and worship. So look again with me at verse 9 of Matthew chapter 2. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose and went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. See, these wise men are supernaturally directed by the star. You notice that the star, it, it rises and then it rests according to the passage. What kind of star does that? What kind of star hovers over a location for a period of time and, and signifies a particular location? This is nothing short of miraculous. There's, there's no uh, comet or, or anything else that we could grab from the natural sciences that we know of that would do what this star is doing, unless I'm completely ignorant, which might be the case. But it just seems like this is something supernatural. And it's not just the supernatural nature of the star itself. The, the dream itself is supernatural. That's described in, in verse 12 and being warned in a dream. Now think about how many people are warned in a dream throughout Matthew 1 and 2. Joseph has three dreams in those two chapters. God is supernaturally directing his people to preserve this child. And so these wise men, they come, and in verse 11, they find the house. Excuse me, let's back up to verse 10. Notice what verse 10 tells for us. When, When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They haven't even seen Jesus yet. They haven't even beheld him with their eyes, but yet they're already rejoicing because they know that this star is guiding them to the Christ. 
And notice the contrast that exists between these wise men who've traveled thousands of miles or hundreds of miles or whatever it is, and by faith have followed this star and now rejoice exceedingly to those that Herod gathered together around him, the minds of the day that knew the Old Testament, that knew the scriptures, and could barely lift a finger to travel five miles south to go see Jesus in Bethlehem. And so what happens in verse 11 is these wise men, they fall down and they worship. Those two terms actually kind of sort of mean the same thing, that there's an emphasis upon them bowing down before this, uh, this young child as, as old as two. They haven't seen anything convincing from Jesus. Ryle says this, he says, they believed in him when they saw him as a little infant on Mary's knees and worshiped him as king. This was the crowning point of their faith. They saw no miracles to convince them. They heard no teaching to persuade them. They saw no signs of divinity and, grace, or, and greatness to overawe them. They saw nothing but a newborn infant, helpless and weak and needing a mother's care like any of us. See, the thing that pulls them to their knees can be nothing else but faith. This child would be king. This child would be someone to be revered. And finally, as they laid down in worship, they offer these gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Surely we recognize all of that from the Christmas songs we sing all the time. But these are gifts of great value offered to Christ. And finally, in verse 12, they're warned in a dream by God's direction to go back a different way, not to talk to Herod again, but to go back silently uh, away from Israel. See, just as there are some who are presented with Christ and they don't see him, there are others who, by God's grace, see the king in all of his glory. And sometimes it's the least expected person in the room. Realize in this story, the, the, if you were to line up all of these people in front of a Jewish audience, you were to line up Herod the king and the high priests and the scribes and, and all of these people in Jerusalem, and then you were to bring in these three wise men, who do you think would exemplify faith to them? Well, it wouldn't be the three foreign people from another land. And so God uses their foreignness to bring some kind of condemnation to the people of Israel in this passage. See, we recognize, though, that they don't see Jesus' glory. See, the, the thing is, is that Jesus' glory doesn't look glorious to the world. Just consider Jesus' relationships throughout his life. Jesus was surrounded by Gentiles and shepherds at his birth. He was with friends that were tax collectors and sinners in his life, and he was surrounded by thieves and lawbreakers at his death. Jesus is consistently surrounded by the have-nots, not exactly people of authority or people that the Jews of the day would have valued. His signs and miracles were misinterpreted and abused. When we look at the life of Jesus, and later on in Matthew 9, uh, there's a claim laid about Jesus that they say he casts out demons by the prince of demons. That Jesus essentially does these miracles because he's filled with a demon. 
That's how Jesus does these things. And so there's an explanation that kind of works its way through the crowd. He was manipulated because of his works and wonders. In John chapter 6, Jesus has just fed 5,000 people with loaves and fish, right? And when he gets to the other side of the lake, uh, these crowds follow him, and Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus is saying, you're not following me because you believe, you're following me because you, you want lunch. And so he's his relationships aren't enough. His signs and miracles aren't enough. And, and he existed throughout his life without wealth or political power. He, he says in Matthew chapter 8, he says, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. The truth of Jesus' existence was a, a constant self-giving to the, the down and outs of society. He was more poor than rich, more outsider than insider, more peasant than powerful. So Jesus didn't look glorious to his contemporaries. But he is glorious to his people, isn't he? kind of already turned our attention to 1 Corinthians 1, but I want to put this passage from 1 Corinthians 1 in front of us. In verse 22, Paul says this, Jews demand signs and and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. See, when Jews see Christ, they see a stumbling block. That is, something kind of trips them up. See, in the Gospels, the the Jewish people were constantly demanding signs. And it's kind of from their history. When when God had prophesied something in the Old Testament, uh, that prophet would accompany his words or his message with a sign. He would perform some kind of miracle to say, this is surely going to come true. And this kind of carries over to the New Testament, and and the Jews are constantly demanding of Jesus a sign. In Matthew 16, the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show a sign for them. In Luke 11, 16, we see the same thing. In John uh, chapter 2, verse 18, the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? See, eventually, Jesus just stopped giving signs. Later on in Matthew 12, he, he answers the crowd. And he says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Even after Jesus had given sti- signs that the Jews still didn't believe, Jesus actually compares them to Sodom and Gomorrah. He said, if the miracles that had been performed amongst you had been performed against, uh, amongst Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. In other words, the miracles and signs weren't the issue. So Jesus is constantly setting these signs in front of people, but they're not seeing it. They don't understand who Christ is. And so they come up with some alternate explanation. He has a demon. What about Greeks? See, when Greeks see wisdom, they just see folly. They see foolishness. The story of, of Paul going to preach in, in Greece, in Athens, in Acts 17. 
And he goes to this place called the Areopagus. It's kind of the, uh, the who's who of the intelligent, right? And so they gather themselves together and they would hear presentations from speakers. And, and Paul speaks. And Acts 17 says this. He says into in this group uh, called the Areopagus, he says, because God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The response, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. See, in hearing about the resurrection, the natural reaction for, for Greeks was to laugh. Ever notice how little we talk about resurrection in our Christian circles anymore? It seems like foolishness, doesn't it? But what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians, he says to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. See, when God's people see Jesus, they see power and wisdom. Power enough to rip out my heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. Power enough to someday raise me to new life. Power to build His church across the globe, to spread the message of Christianity across uh, the Mediterranean in the first century. Power enough to uh, reach the horn of Africa, the jungles of Brazil, and the depths of communist China. We are not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation. See, Jesus is one of power and authority, right? That's what he says in Matthew chapter 20. He says, all authority on heaven and on earth is given to me. We see Christ as powerful and authoritative. We see Christ as wise, as absolute wisdom, wisdom to confine the wise and the debater of this age, wisdom to outmaneuver Satan and the spiritual authorities of our world, wisdom to plan and accomplish what he has done in Christ. We concur with Paul in Romans chapter 11, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Christ's power and wisdom is what brings us to salvation. And so we bow, don't we? We put our knees into the earth in subjection to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And as these wise men from a foreign nation come and they bow before God, they bring these gifts. They bring gold to to emphasize Jesus as the true king. As we look throughout the Old Testament, we see gold constantly used in the building of temple, in in the honoring of kings. They bring frankincense to say that Jesus is truly God. In the Old Testament, when when you would uh, burn... um, Incense, you would burn frankincense in the presence of God uh, to kind of soothe him, to offer the soothing aroma. It shows that Jesus is truly God, but finally that he's truly man and that they offered myrrh. You know where else we hear of myrrh in the Old Testament? I feel like a, I'm trying to say myrrh. I feel like a, anyway, I don't want to say it. Anyway, I feel like I'm saying America. Anyway. I didn't want to go there. Where else do we see the word myrrh used in the Gospels? It's what's mixed with wine at Jesus' crucifixion and offered up to him. 
It's the burial spice that Nicodemus comes and he applies to the dead body of Jesus in John chapter 19. See, even here, they bring gold. Jesus, your king. They bring frankincense. Jesus, your God. They bring myrrh. Jesus, you're going to die. Even from his birth, Jesus was destined for death. And only the person who knows his own sin and the punishment that Jesus paid sees this as beautiful. It's only because we see our sinfulness, our negative account before the throne of God, that we deserved eternal punishment. And we bow our knees before this baby Jesus and say, you are king, you are God, you are man, and you deserve all of my worship, all of my honor. See, this morning what we're doing is we're exemplifying for you a kind of narrative, a narrative that you can take to your friends and neighbors and relatives that's saying, Jesus is the Christ, and, and our right response is to bow in subjection to his throne. See, as Christians, we should commit to simply talking about Jesus Christ. This passage in in 1 Corinthians 1 that we've been looking at, Paul goes on and he describes in 1 Corinthians 2 how he approached the people at Corinth. And so it'll be on the screen behind me, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And I, this is Paul, when I, I came to you, Brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul, brilliant man, comes to Corinth and he decides he knows one thing, Jesus and Jesus crucified. He goes on in verse 3, And I was with you and weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. I didn't come knowing anything but Christ, but man, I was nervous. I was a wreck. But it's how the Spirit showed Himself to be powerful. See, Christian, when you go to your friends and neighbors and you invite them to bow before Christ, you don't come with lofty speech. We didn't come proclaiming the the testimony of of God. We don't come with lofty speech or, or intricate arguments. We don't come with all of those things. We come in humility of just knowing Christ, that he was crucified like I should have been crucified. We don't come with with great plans. Paul didn't know anything. He didn't have any plan. just came saying to the Corinthians, I know nothing but Christ and Him crucified. He didn't come with with capability. In verse 3, he says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Does that give you heart this morning? Every time I I go and I, I realize you're in that moment where you can share the gospel with someone, my hands start to shake. I get the feeling in the pit of my stomach. My My throat tightens a little bit. Does that happen to you? We get nervous about it. We, we build up, we just recognize the thing we need to do is just talk about Jesus. And lastly, he says, we come with Jesus and with the power of the Spirit. 
Are you content to show the Spirit's power in your evangelism, in your interactions? Some of us, we, we, we share Christ so much, it's, it's like a notch on our belt. We, we almost just kind of envision that we're just going to work hard enough. We're going to work so hard that, that somebody else will come into the kingdom eventually. And, and at, at the end, it'll be honoring to us because we just we prevent, presented the right argument or we did the right thing or, or preached the right message or whatever it is. And the question in, uh, it before us this morning is, is Christ enough for us? Are Jesus and the Spirit enough? Or do we find that too simple? Maybe too embarrassing to so boldly plain, uh, be plain people of faith. It's too embarrassed to actually share that we believe that someday we actually will be raised from the dead and presented in the presence of God, forgiven all of our wrongdoings before a righteous and holy God and live eternally with Him. Let's be people who push our knees into the dirt before the presence of Jesus. Let's be people who bow our hearts and our minds before Christ. And, and as we do so, not worry about the concerns of the world, what they consider foolishness, what they consider powerful. Let's see the beauty and majesty of Christ for what he is. And let's respond in kind. Lord, we pray that now. We pray that you would allow us to be people who who live in subjection to your rule and authority. We want to be people who are worshipers, who live in response to your majesty and your authority, Jesus. Lord, you promise your presence with us. You say, lo, you will be with us always. And so now, as you're with us, we live in subjection to your rule and authority. We pray that that would translate on our lips, that we wouldn't be content to know anything else but Jesus and him crucified. And Lord, we pray before your throne now that you would make that message powerful and effective as your spirit convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.